Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez, and I'm happy to report that right now you can order my book. That's right. I wrote a book. It's called That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore on the Death and Rebirth of Comedy. Follow the link in the description or head over to Amazon and search for Lou Perez. That joke isn't funny anymore. If you want other options on how you can buy my book, please sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com. You could also join my community at theluperez.locals.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could leave a five-star review, that would be amazing. Whether you're a long-time listener or first-time, five-star reviews are lovely. If you're looking for other ways you can support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors. If you're into CBD products, please check out PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use promo code Lou to get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you like cold brew, check out Black Organic Cold Brew at www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. All right, let's go. I'm very excited to be joined by my next guest. He is the editor of Spiked Magazine, my favorite magazine, Mr. Tom Slater. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me, Luke. How you doing? Well, yeah, about that. So this is the the earliest recording that I'm ever doing, <laughs> and it might be the last one that I ever do uh, from my podcast. It is uh, 7 a.m. for me, um, Eastern Time. And Tom, it's like, I don't even know. I, I don't even know if you have time in England right now where you are. <laughs> you're, you're in such a wonderful uh, time zone. Uh, and, and the reason why I, I, I did this is uh, normally, uh, so I, I, I had stuff happening during the day. So I thought, oh, maybe I can get this in beforehand. And we were scheduling for a while. And uh, with my kids, my normal routine is... Um, I'm woken up around 4:30 a.m. or 5 a.m. on a good on a great day. It's like 5:30 a.m. And so I was thinking that's probably what's going to happen. And then wouldn't you know, on the morning that I book a 7 a.m. recording, my son sleeps so well <laughs> that I could have I could have gotten I could have made it till maybe past 7 a.m. with some sleep. So that that's where I am. I can have terrible timing on my part, but no, we'll, it's we'll like, <laughs> yeah. How, what do you do? You have a morning routine? What is your uh, morning routine like? Oh, this is a good question. Um, I just get up, read the news, and go to work. Essentially, I mean, at the moment, it feels like you. It's. I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but it feels like it's been impossible to switch off what's going on in the world for what feels like about the past five years. <laughs> it's just been one thing after another. And particularly being in, in, in the business that I'm in, um, you know, you just constantly glued to it. But no, that's, that's certainly the thing. It's um, first thing in the morning, see what's going on in the world, see who's invaded whom and work out how we're going to re respond to it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, so you, you've been an editor now for um, how many uh, how many months uh, so far? It was um, it must have what was it last September October? I honestly can't remember. It feels like an age ago, given how much has changed since then. But about yeah. yeah. So you know, not only are you just you know wired and completely uh, you know tuned into everything that's happening, but then you also have added pressure on yourself to be able mm -hmm. to have to oversee uh, you know just a whole stable of other people who have to be tuned in uh, to everything that's uh, that's going on. Yeah, and, you know, uh, cursed it, living interesting and now quite uh, dangerous times, it seems like. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, what a time to be talking about what's going on in the world. It's endlessly fascinating, even though it has been in a sort of grim sense, shall we say, over the course of the past month. Yeah, and, and I don't know if, um, uh, if you agree with me on this, but uh, sometimes what I find is what's even more interesting than what's happening in the world are the responses to what's mm. happening in the world. And it could be anything from, uh, you know, something very big like Russia invading Ukraine to something that happened, you know, the other night uh, with Will Smith smacking, yes. uh, you know, Chris Rock and the Oscars. It, it's, it, I'm, I'm always amazed at just um, uh, all the different permutations when it comes to human behavior and how they will, will respond to the, the weirdest stuff that's happening. Yeah, the, the Will Smith thing, I think, was a, was a good example how we do live under this, like, tyranny of takes. It doesn't matter how big or how small the story is, discourse must happen. There must be commentary. There must be um, endless kind of permutations of, of different kind of points. And that was a really good example of that. I mean, it, you know, that slap had barely landed before people were saying that this was, you know, a welcome revival of honour culture in one corner, or it was another, you know, the reaction to it proved that anti-blackness still, you know, kind of stains American society and discourse or whatever. Something as simple as a bloke slapping another bloke because he took the mick out of his wife uh, yeah. has, to, has to have so much more significance, it seems like. So that's definitely a fascinating one. And, and it's also, you know, we're living in a time, you know, obviously where we, we all have email, we all have phones, we get to share stuff, you know, right away. I, I didn't watch the Oscars. I wasn't planning on watching the Oscars. Uh, I usually, I, I didn't find out until like maybe a maybe the day of or the day before that it was going on. I, you know, just wasn't interested, interested in it. And I went to bed early because I knew I was going to be up very early in the morning. And when I woke up, my friend from Los Angeles had texted me and said, um, you know, you might have to rewrite your book because uh, Will Smith, because of the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And for those of you who, are, who aren't familiar, I, I wrote a book called, uh, that joke isn't funny anymore about, about comedy. Uh, and I'm like, oh God, what you know? Am I going to have to, you know, write, you know, you know, a few more hundred words uh, for this? And then I just watched the clip, and it's like, oh, my friend and the world has forced this upon me in a way. <laughs> you know, it's like in, in a way they've slapped me with <laughs> with this friggin' thing. Yeah. No, you're the, you're the real victim of all this. I, I can see it. I mean, it was amazing. I, I was almost surprised taking a step back from it, just how huge it was. Because that morning, I got up at about 5.30 a.m., something thereabouts, because I, I was doing this um, radio stint I do a couple of times a month where I'm just kind of sat in with the host for the full um, spate of the show, just sort of chipping in with things. And this became the main story. You know, there's war in Europe, there's a uh, cost of living crisis here, there's all these different things. But it was just, there was something about that story which was just irresistible, wasn't it? And I think, uh, whilst partly it's just a spectacle of this yeah. outrage happening at an award ceremony that we'd all switched off from because it becomes so boring and turgid uh but also because yeah it has to mean something it feels like as well inevitably which is, is something that's even with something as, as kind of obvious and explainable as that seems creepy yeah yeah and uh i i you know i i led i, I lent my uh uh, my artistic sensibilities and, and made a TikTok where I just, <laughs> I made a TikTok. I just, I just said, uh, I, I, it, the gist of it was, if anybody wants to go see it, uh, it was just, you know, when it comes to defending your woman, it's a really smart move to defend her against men, you know, you can beat up. You know? 
because I, I've uh, in the past, I've, I've, you know, we, we've all been to bars with our, with our, you know, girlfriends, and you know, had to stand up to, you know, to men who are being jerks, and you never do research on them. You have no idea who these guys are, what martial arts they know, or anything like that. Um, you know, you're getting into dangerous territory. But Will Smith, I mean, we have. We have decades and decades of Chris Rock material, one of the greatest comedians to ever live. Not much of a fighter, at least as far as I know. So yeah. I think I think you know Will chose uh, chose wisely. I think a lot of people were you know, were pointing that out. I think a lot of people said mm -hmm. if it wasn't Chris Rock, if it was The Rock, maybe it would have been a, a, a very different response on <laughs> on Will's part. You know. Yeah, Chris's cousin V. Uh, no, it was it was it was funny that, especially because there was that response you saw from some kind of conservative corners of Twitter, which was to sort of say, that's what I would have done, and all this sort of thing. First of all, missed the fact that, you know, this was a, a, a joke at an award ceremony. You know, America has this tradition of roasting at these things. It's not, it's a it's a slight overreaction. But also because if you're looking for an avatar of kind of traditional values and standing up for your <laughs> Pinkett Smiths are not where you go to for that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, and, and that's and, you know, and that's another element to this where it's like I have absolutely no interest in the life of the Smiths. But now, in order for me to to under to, to even understand some of the commentary coming out, I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, what's going on? Are they polyamorous? Was it cheating? Was it, and it's like, why am again? It's being forced <laughs> upon me, Tom. It's being forced about you can't yeah you can't yeah but you know i think after a few um you know obviously there were uh you know a lot of uh my fellow comedians talking about oh this is this is bullshit like the idea mm -hmm. that i'm gonna have to worry about being hit because some i make a joke um and you know i could i could uh i could understand that but i think like with with a few more days removed from the actual incident i look back and i'm like i think I think Will Smith is obviously going through something. It doesn't seem mm -hmm. that doesn't seem like the uh, the actions of a reasonable person, a calm, cool, collected guy who has you would think that has his whole life in order. Um, it seemed yeah. like there was something really, uh, really going on. I did not watch um, his uh, his acceptance speech, uh, mm -hmm. which I heard just adds a uh, a whole other element, a whole other layer to the absurdity. Where after. Uh, slapping Chris Rock, he won for best actor and then gave an acceptance speech where I think love and light were uh, were talked about. Uh, yeah, he kind of presented it as with the, with the film in which he plays the Williams sisters' his father. Um, someone who stuck up for his family and that's something which I, which I intend to do as well. I have to say, the, the thing that really um, struck me was there was this clip that did the rounds, I think it was like the Vanity Fair after party or something like that, where Will Smith's there like um, sort of performing one of his songs, one of the big it's a horror, which one? And then what really cracked me up was just the kind of slightly wary way in which people were sort of swaying around him like slight distance. Uh, there, yeah, there was a weird atmosphere afterwards. It was like a, it was, it was like this huge thing that happened, but no one knew how to respond to it. But I, I you know, call me old fashioned. I, I'm surprised that no one just said, you know, you have to leave. <laughs> I thought that yeah. was the thing. Yes, if you slap someone, you got to, you got to get out. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Not the yeah, it's like, it's like, look, we're not saying you can't come back next year, but yeah. <laughs> right now you have to get out of here. You know? No, I, yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a uh, it's it's not a glitch in the matrix or anything like that, uh, but it is it just so it shows just such a breakdown of of norms uh, and 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 just what we're 
well, norms, what we're used to, you know, what we're used to seeing, you know, a night that's supposed, supposed to be glamorous, uh, and, uh, and all that just turns into, uh, I don't, I don't know, just a, a wacky, wacky, uh, wacky thing. Um, has anything happened like that to any in like at, at the BAFTA awards? As you know, it's, uh, you know it's, uh, Peter O'Toole, you know, ever ever hop up on stage and <laughs> it's hard to remember because people have quite short memories about these things. I mean, people get right. very shocked about things happening in the present, and then there's always someone who kind of points out 20, 30 years ago, you know, someone threw a glass at someone or whatever. Nothing immediately comes to mind. Mm. Um, I'm sure something like this happened. I mean, you've got a lot of you know uh, famous. Uh, drunk actors together something's going to happen every so often surely you know yeah yeah um well you know since since um you know chris rock is a is a comedian i know that you're a you know you're a big uh, big fan of of comedy and uh you know one of the uh, one of the, uh, the 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 coverage that i really enjoy in spiked is definitely on the comedy beat which you know um th- I, I thank you very much for uh having a given me some space uh to you know to to write about it um, you know, we, we keep talking about, you know, sort of like the, the state of comedy. How, how, what, what do you see it as? How, how, how are we doing on the comedy front? Well, it, feel, it's, it feels sort of dreadful, doesn't it? But it's, I think there's two very different conversations in the UK and the US. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the US, obviously, there's a lot of, I mean, you think about the, Dave, the whole Dave Chappelle Netflix scandal, um, you know, Bill Burr getting in trouble for X, Y, Z, and there being this genuine you know, woke comedy being something which is a growing force and seems to be trying to take down the kind of more traditional no-holds-barred type approach. The UK feels much more stifled, I think, just because we, for whatever reason, um, comedy has been sort of dominated by quite a kind of middle-class politically correct set for quite a while. They they weren't quite as bad as they are now previously. That used to be a bit more interesting. But comedy in the UK is very dominated by kind of the BBC. Um, it's very much dominated by kind of a particular type of almost like private school, went to Oxford, uh, goes up to Edinburgh and gets their break, gets a Radio 4 show, which is like a big um, uh, radio uh, station here, which is you know very kind of middle class audience. So it's very dominated by that sensibility. Um, and so the outliers are a little harder to find, if you see what I mean, um, and kind of control over is a little bit more stifling. What's interesting is that um, even within something like the BBC, there's been a recognition that this has kind of gone a little bit too far, that particularly after the EU referendum and you would just have kind of nightly uh, you know, comedy panel shows in which just really lame jokes about they're all just lizard brain idiots or whatever – being recycled over and over again. Actually, like the director general of the BBC has made these various kind of showy statements about how we need to take on woke comedy and we need to have more diversity of opinion. So there's there's an attempt to correct, if you like. But I think the problem the UK has is like it, the comedy industry and the thing that really dominates what gets out on the airwaves is structurally very woke to begin with, yeah. uh, in a way that there's there's just not, to my mind, in terms of someone of that kind of stature, there's not an equivalent to a Chappelle or a Burr or someone like that who is kind of uncancelable and huge. Here, if you're a big comic, you're either quite politically correct or you're just apolitical. That tends to kind of be the balance. But you do get a sense that things are changing. There are some people who are putting in good work to try and kind of open the Overton window, to stretch the Overton window a little bit, I guess. Yeah, um, over o- over the years, um, when, when I've uh, followed... Um, you know, British uh, comedians. One, one thing that I that I noticed is that it, it seems like I don't know. I'm not saying this is for every British comic, but at some point in the show, the British comic like breaks the fourth wall 
and talks about how important it is to be able to make jokes and joke about things you're not supposed to joke about. And, you know, it's sort of, uh, I, I've seen it a number of times. I, um, Jimmy Carr had a really great, uh, really great bit uh, where it's like, he's going to, he's going to deliver progressively more fucked up jokes mm -hmm. and he's letting everybody in on it. Um, and he's able to, uh, you know, to, you know, to nail that because he, he's so good at it. Um, but I was sort of, I, I, it just made me think, I was like, man, I, I wish we could just get back to a time where it's instead of talking about, oh, you should be able to do this, you just do it. Yeah. And it's just, and it's just, yeah, that, that, I'm, that, that's, that's what you're supposed to do, you know? Yeah. I oh, know. I think that's a really good point, actually. Cause first of all, there's a danger that, um, I don't even want to say anti-work comedy, but like anti-work comedy in and of itself sometimes makes me cringe a little bit just because mm. it becomes, first of all, I don't just want to hear my own views you know, reflected back to me anyway. It's not it's supposed to be a little bit more uh, you know, creative than that. But also, as you say, you spend so much time kind of uh, making your case as to why you should be able to make this joke. You don't actually get to the joke. I even think like Chappelle's last special where there's a lot of, it's not necessarily th throat clearing and it is still very funny. But he almost spends so much time addressing the issue yeah. and um, almost providing his kind of pro-trans bona fides by talking about, you know, I, you know, I know trans people and all the rest of it. It does get in the way of, of the comedy a little bit. The problem is it's kind of become a bit of a necessity in a, in a really strange way. And so far as it's almost like these comedians who comedians, you know, as being a comedian yourself, you know, the, the job is not to be some sort of political spokesman, but it has become that in one way, shape or form. Either you're kind of you've got more high status opinions and you feel the need to just express them even though a comedy uh, club isn't is hardly the forum in which to do that necessarily naturally or you feel like you have to um almost prepare people if you're going to say something even slightly against the grain so yeah i think a, a much healthier situation is not where we've got a thriving woke scene and a thriving anti-woke scene it's just where people just do comedy sometimes it's political sometimes it's not might be left wing might, might be right wing but yeah it, it we we do run the risk, I think, of just getting caught into it, just becoming another theatre of the culture war. In not a very yeah, thing. yeah. I, I wonder if if um, if a lot of it has to do with this whole idea of you know comedians being truth tellers. Mm. You know, you hear that all the time. You've been oh man, comedians are truth tellers and truth tellers, and it's like eh, sometimes I guess you know, but also there's a hell of a lot of comedy and lying and 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 bullshitting, you know, and. Uh, but but also it's sort of like if you keep hearing like oh comedians are truth tellers in an age where there's so much bullshit then you're going to be turning to comedians please be the truth teller and a lot of comedians aren't like you said are pretty apolitical aren't necessarily yeah. looking to be the truth tellers and all that uh and it's like yeah you know i might have wonderful observations about going to the supermarket and blah 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 it doesn't necessarily mean that i have uh you know incredible insights when it comes to you know war or genocide or you know or, or anything like that so. no no i think that's right and i think there's, there's an element of just sort of putting too much pressure because obviously people talk about make the points quite rightly that you know historically it was always the, the kind of jester or the comedian or whatever who had that extra bit of license and you do have to be a little bit concerned when you just can't joke about things when you can't just kind of let off a little bit of steam about issues we can't just play around with them you know, not necessarily just talking about them earnestly, just just taking the taking the piss, as we'd say in England. That's when that happens. It is a, it's an alarming thing, and it undermines the status of the comedian. Well, on the other hand, you don't want to layer too much pressure on them. It's like it's like you know, Dave Chappelle must keep making trans jokes, otherwise, <laughs> you know that that is kind of the the uh, 
the approach that we're stumbling into. And also, you know, whilst I, you know, a lot there's a lot of political comedy that I like and have liked over the years, but there's also a lot of it which is just dreadful on all sides. You know, being the truth teller can, you know, someone like a figure like Bill Hicks, I think, his influence has, in some respects, just created loads of people in a, a, a in a kind of quite irritating uh, pound shop imitation of that, you know, where they just kind of just sound off about X, Y, Z and think that that's the kind of comedy routine. So there's a, um, you know, I think that the, ultimately the thing that we're dancing around here is the fact that comedy is supposed to be funny. Um, and right. that seems to be the thing that's gotten away, we've gotten away from as it's become more political. I guess. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a way to put it. I, my, um, my, my wife, uh, she's been to just countless shows uh, that I've done and, yeah, the amount of times that she's that that she's like, oh my god, like she feels really bad for the comedian, not because mm-hmm. they're not doing well, but what they're putting out there. It's like, oh my god, are you okay? Like you just seem, <laughs> you just seem either. And it's been often. It's like if uh, when it comes to dudes, it's sort of like the the Bill Hicks knockoffs. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you're just you seem like very angry and cynical, mm-hmm. and you know maybe three you know three steps from hanging yourself. Or uh, when it comes to a lot of um, female comics, we'll have like this insanely self-deprecating, you know, material where it's like, oh, my God, are you okay? Like, are you, you know, are you medicated? Are you trying to get medicated? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I guess, you know, it takes a it it takes a long time in comedy, you know, or like in any, you know, any art form to find your voice uh, and to, you know, uh, you know, build up your your skill set. So I could see early on, you know, like trying to do you know following in uh, you know down similar ro- roads as as comedians that you like i often like at, at it happened the other night when i was performing uh, at some point i think for like five minutes i just became george carlin and there was no uh, and someone actually pointed it out it was almost like um i don't know uh well like my back kind of like hunched over and i started talking like this hello yeah and so uh I don't know where I don't know where I am right now. I'm talking, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, but it's, that's, yeah, right. that's one thing that I think is um, becomes uh, really. It's where things get tricky is when any form of art just becomes so overtly politicized. Like art can be political of any form, you know, high art, low lower culture, comedy, literature, whatever. It can be political, but if 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 the very act of doing it becomes a kind of political act or, or sort of another front in the culture war, well, you know, you just end up in trouble. Um, and I think even on our side of the argument, who are obviously more pro-free speech and don't want to see comedians getting cancelled and the rest of it, you can end up kind of presenting almost a too worthy kind of stature of the comedians as if to say, you know, like the truth teller thing, um, like, you know, sometimes it is important to, you know, they are speaking truth to power and, you know, right. taking down the establishment, which can definitely be true. Of course it can. But sometimes offensive humour is just offensive humour. What's funny about it is that you're not supposed to be saying that. You know, like one of the most incredible comedians I've ever seen live is like Jerry Sadowitz, who um, is a Glaswegian comedian. He was born in New York, I think. And his whole routine is just is just painfully, almost toxically offensive. Like, it's disgusting. Uh, but he's very fated in the kind of... He, interestingly, he's very fated by the kind of same BBC comedy set people that I've mentioned previously. He just never records anything. You have to go and see him live. And what's funny about that is not because it's a, um, a wry critique of anything in particular. It's just that he's saying the most outrageous things you could possibly imagine one joke after another for 90 minutes. And that's what's so bracing about it. He's got no agenda, as far as I can particularly tell. So I think that, you know, we can we can sometimes do ourselves a bit of a, get ourselves into a bit of a corner when we present kind of comedy offensive or otherwise as some sort of like great 
noble, important <laughs> yeah. pursuit. Um, it's it's good in and of itself if you like comedy and you like art, if we're going to put it that way. And I think it's important to bear that in mind, I guess. Yeah, yeah. For uh, free speech defenders, you know, you, you often hear, you know, I, I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend <laughs> to the death your right to say it. And then some shit comedian says something that's just not funny and disgusting. You're like, oh, fuck, I have to die for this guy. Like, I have to, <laughs> die, I have to die for this joke. Like, can I die for a well-crafted, you know, hour-long, uh, you know, comedy special? Um, but th there's there's something, um, uh, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with, uh, with that comedian, uh, but you said, uh, you know, you're only able to see this stuff live. Like, he doesn't record mm -hmm. it. And, you know, now we're living in, you know, in a time where the norm is giving basically seemingly all of you uh, the performer to the public, you know, mm -hmm. so every comedian, um, uh, you know, even, you know, some of the, the most successful uh, comedians around have podcasts. So no, they're giving hours, hours and hours of material often for free to a public. And then they're appearing on shows and they're performing live and they're, you know, putting out albums. It's, uh, I don't know. It seems like um, it, it can be difficult, I think, to, to produce, produce to one to, to to produce all that all that work be interesting and original and then also uh not be judged based on every little thing that you mm -hmm. do you know because you, you could have a comedian you know you know decades of experience and then he goes on a little you know a, a twitter thread mm -hmm. and people are like you got to get rid of this guy and it's like well wait wait a minute you're just judging you're judging him by that little uh 140 characters or whatever we're at now yeah i know that's, that's a really good point i mean especially because as you say like podcast has become so such an important medium for comedians and it's so crucial but especially given the fact that comedy has become such a target of of cancellation and such a kind of focus of the culture war it's just endless reams of material it's like when they were going trying to go after joe rogan they, they must have had literally thousands of hours of material through which yeah. they possibly get him on and but there is a there is a weird thing where there's just not an appreciation of what a, what it is that comedy is that it exists in a particular context now obviously that's easy to see when you're in the confines of a, of a comedy club or, or a theater or whatever um but at the same time people it's almost like we now hold comedians and even just celebrities just anyone to the same standards that you would kind of elected official whose words generally mean something if they hold forth on mm transgender issues or the war in Ukraine, whatever it is, it means something. But it's like everyone's their own little politician now. I just don't know why we've come to that particular point. There's just no appreciation of the fact that ultimately comedians are, as with anyone else, are going to talk about and joke about issues um, and they're often not going to be serious <laughs> when they talk about these things. Just that simple point seems to pass a lot of people by, it feels like. Yeah, yeah, the idea uh, that the idea that that so many jokes or quip or you know quips are taken seriously it's i, I you know you want to say to the person like do you really believe because well, but i guess it was jimmy carr had a joke about um was about the holocaust or something that 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 offended some people uh and you you know the people that it offended or at least the people who were vocal about it and willing to you know go after him it's like were you really offended or is this you know, ammunition in some end game that, that you want to see, you know? Um, yeah. And I guess that, that might be like, 
the cynicism, you know, showing. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy Carr's a good example of just how um, it does feel like the world's changed because he is one of those people who's just made a, there's a couple of them in the UK, him and um, Frankie Boyle's another one, Scottish comedian, um, who I think is probably less well-known in America than maybe Jimmy Carr might be, but um, who sort of made, in the sort of early, mid-2000s, a big mainstream career out of being quite offensive, you know, in a, in a kind of sick joke way you know, kind of in a kind of really kind of harsh one line. It's not particularly political or whatever, but, you know, those kinds of slightly slightly grim humour. So for people to respond in the way that he did to that particular joke he told, um, I thought was really quite strange. The other thing that was strange about it, I'm not sure if this if this was picked up much in the US, is that our own government in, like intervened in that discussion. <laughs> very, very weird. So our like, culture secretary, um, who is in the process of putting this piece of legislation through Parliament, which would put more... Um, pressure on social media companies and various different tech firms to basically filter out different forms of offensive content. Their term is uh, legal but harmful. It's very Orwellian. Wow. Basically said that what we're looking at at the moment is to try is to try and make sure that this can't happen again, <laughs> that Netflix wouldn't be able to get away with this. And, um, you know, that's one thing that I always say, that like, as much as Americans might think that, you, you know, your culture war is more intense, of course, but in terms of the sort of just uh, casual discussion of state censorship here in the UK and in Europe in general, it's just dreadful. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't believe the sort of things politicians come out with in this stuff. Yeah. When I, um, when I was writing my book and just looking back at, you know, previous incidents of, um, you know, comedians getting fucked by their, by their government, uh, it was, uh, it was unreal. I mean, uh, in, in Scotland, I mean, it seems like you have like agents of the state going through social media and looking for thought crime and they're gonna you know if they don't dm you they're gonna knock knock at your door to you know to to punish you for these uh for these thoughts yeah you guys are are, uh, it doesn't take much bravery in the united states uh to uh to speak one's mind at least compared to you know other countries uh out there and how do you how do you guys do it especially at, at spiked because you guys aren't afraid to you know, take on uh, uh, every, uh, you know, I don't, I don't even want to say hot button issue, but like nuclear issue uh, mm. that that's going around. I, I had a, um, uh, a Libby Emmons uh, on a earlier episode. She's from uh, the post millennial and they publish out of Canada and Libby's American. So she, she works out of, uh, I believe Brooklyn. And I asked her, you know, since it's going out through Canada, like, do you have to censor? And she's like, Oh yeah. Like they, they need to find, um, you know, words of, you know, ways of expressing uh, stuff with, um, um, you know, transgender people and and all that, that won't get it dinged by, by censors. Are are you guys in a similar, similar boat with that? It's not quite as, it's not quite as bad as all that. I mean, what's interesting, I think, is that um, obviously in the UK, we have hate speech laws, uh, we have terrible libel laws, we have all these different things, which obviously every publication, not less the hate speech thing, I mean, you have to be pretty extreme to get bothered by that too much, I suppose. But uh, in terms of, you know, th- there's various kind of legal things that you have to worry about. Uh, if you're in broadcast media, we have a broadcast regulator, um, all these different things which um, put restrictions and kind of the dampness on a lot of um, free expression and all the rest of it. What's interesting is that for, for us, aside from the kind of, you know, the backlash you might get on social media or in the mainstream media, if we take a particular position in quite a forthright fashion, the day-to-day thing we have to worry about is um, from over over there, it's big tech. So mm-hmm. if we're, for instance, writing about something like the Leah Thomas situation, we've got a particular author who's, um, 
you know, making a, making a particular point about that, that issue. How we word those tweets could be the difference between our account getting suspended and not. Uh, similarly with um, Facebook, although it's not quite as bad on that particular issue, that's the thing on a day-to-day basis, aside from making sure that, you know, you just uphold the used levels of accuracy and you make sure that you're not um, saying anything that isn't untrue or defaming people or whatever. That's the thing that actually um, focuses our minds a lot on a day-to-day basis, interestingly. Um, obviously, there's the kind of general cultural uh, issue of um, people clamming up around certain issues and you do feel like, we often at Spike feel like that we're kind of first out in front on a lot of those particular cultural issues because there is a nervousness about talking about those things. But kind of more formally, and I think this speaks to how significant the whole big tech censorship issue is, that's the thing that we're often focusing on day to day. It's not necessarily what's on the statute book in the UK or how that might affect how we discuss issues. Yeah, when it comes to the uh, culture secretary, how does one become a culture secretary? Is there is is there a test? Because I mean, well, just the idea of you know a culture sec- secretary, especially what what you guys are dealing with, where you know traditional English culture and history is consistently under attack. I mean, when when I see you know people writing about decolonizing English, which doesn't make any fucking sense because. No, the English were the colonized. You can't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's sort of, you know, what constitutes, you know, British culture, English culture, or, you know, what, what's acceptable, uh, mm. you know, culture to begin with. It's, it's a funny, it's a funny position in government that um, it's often called the kind of fun job because it's the sort of thing you get to run around, you know, because um, it also includes sports and things like this, oh. uh, culture, media and sport. Um, but the current occupant of that office, who is actually a kind of best-selling novelist as a background, she's also a Tory MP and all the rest of it, um, is she's really, she's called Nadine Doris, she's really taken to the kind of censorship <laughs> aspect of this. So she intervened, obviously, in the Jimmy Carr discussion. There's this this bill which is currently going through Parliament called the Online Safety Bill, which would put these requirements on social media companies to have a kind of duty of care to restrict what they call legal but harmful speech and it's funny because she's a good example actually of how and i'm sure this is very true in america as well and i've seen some examples of it even the kind of nominally like anti-woke right are really snowflakey about other stuff so she was a bit of a culture warrior she used to that when she uh, took her current position people were kind of pointing to old tweets where she was talking about how quite quote like lefty snowflakes are ruining comedy hmm. the sort of person who would get very agitated about a statue being toppled all that kind of stuff but when it comes but jimmy carr makes a joke or there's um, information out on the internet that's deemed to be misinformation or whatever, and then suddenly all of that just completely melts away. So, yeah, it's a, it's a funny old job, but I think particularly at the moment it's just kind of become to mean censorship. <laughs> yeah. Second, what, what you know? Yeah, I guess, you know, you know, being in the in the States and, and me being, uh, uh, you know, libertarian or, you know, anarcho-capitalist, uh, I, uh, I don't know. There, there, we have a lot more... Um, extremes uh in the u.s it, it seems like uh which i like uh, i i think you know if, you know go extreme baby you know be you know go go for it uh whereas when you know when i hear like conservative uh you know in in england a conservative in england it's a very different conservative than a conservative in the united states uh so even with that it, it is interesting um to see you know the 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 spillover where you would think like, Oh, one party is 100%. You would think one party is 100% no censorship. And the other party is maybe some censorship or, you know, or going all the way. But as you explained, like, that's not the, that's not the case. No, definitely not. And there's a lot, I mean, it's difficult because on the one hand, I think you've got to give the current government some 
some credit and a, a stress some for recognizing that the free speech issue is, is an issue. Um, they've talked a lot about cancel culture. They've talked a lot about the issue of freedom of speech on university campuses, which is uh, a very is similarly chronic problem in the UK as it is in the US. Um, but at the same time, everything they do in practice just pushes in the other direction. You know, either their attempts to sort these things out are quite feeble, and it just amounts to one of them writing an article in the newspaper or going on a broadcast around us and kind of talking about this issue in a really lame way, you know, mm -hmm. go to war with wokery and all this sort of thing. This <laughs> makes our side of the argument look a bit bad. That's, that's a slightly cheap point. Or they're pushing in the complete opposite direction. You know, they're trying to criminalise forms of speech on the internet or they're going after Jimmy Carr. So it's it's a difficult one. It's, it's something which I've, I've been um, surprised and um, cheered then that a lot of these issues that we at Spikes have been talking about for a long time, freedom of speech, identity politics, all of these things which we see as really crucial um, have come more to the fore of British parliamentary politics and the Tories and this particular government have played a role in that. But um, in practice, they're just dreadful. And there's no two ways around that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, one of the... You know, one of the things that I love about about Spiked uh, is uh, the unexpected. In that, I know mm -hmm. that if I, uh, you know, if I go to uh, Spiked, and everybody should go there right now, uh, uh, Spiked-Online.com, uh, I believe, uh, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to get takes that you know you don't expect to you don't expect to see. And uh, one one of the things that I uh, a recent one that I really enjoyed was uh, I forget who. Who wrote it? But uh, it was about uh, heterosexual queers. Yes. Uh, that um, I don't know if you had a if you had a hand in uh, in editing <laughs> editing that. Uh, this is with Gareth Roberts, who's a um, a very good commentator and also uh, by trade um, has kind of written various things for kind of books and TV shows and things like that. So he's a yeah fascinating phenomenon the, the heterosexual queer. The, the heterosexual queer, and it's. Uh, uh, can can you explain it? Can, can, I, don't, I don't think I'll, I'll do. I don't think I'll do it justice. It says no, I'll try. I mean, it's as far as I understand it. Um, it's that there's been an increase in essentially heterosexual people claiming the mantle of queer, um, and I, it's hard to work out on what basis. It might be because they just how they kind of present and dress is a little bit different. Their lifestyles a little bit sideways. Uh, it's hard to kind of guess. In some cases, these people might be non-binary, I guess, is part of the discussion around this. But uh, but uh, for all intents and purposes, in a heterosexual relationship. Um, but the th I think the thing that Gareth really touches on there is just the, the way in which the, um, th there's just been a desperation to kind of claim this from a certain type of kind of middle class, actually quite sort of milk toast individual. Um, and how so much of that just speaks to how, you know, we talk about the and rightly so, about the various injustices, both historical and present, experienced by, you know, people with different backgrounds, sexualities, whatever. But at the same time, it's just become a... The point at which it becomes an identity is the point at which you really get in trouble because also people want in on that. <laughs> <laughs> sexual queer thing is probably, is probably a good example of that. It's like, I suppose it's a kind of... It's like the sexual version of, like, um, the sexuality version of, like, a Rachel Dolezal almost. Yeah. <laughs> but for whatever reason, it's more acceptable. I'm not sure why. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, when, when I when I hear all of these different um, uh, sexual identities or gender, I don't even know if it's, if it's considered a gender or sex identity or whatever. I mean, one thing that I'm hoping is that these people are actually having sex because it's <laughs> it, it to put all that work in, you know, mm. to come up with a new, to define a new word. I mean, I hope you're getting laid, you know, uh, or, or maybe, you know, maybe this is an attempt to, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, increase the pool of potential, uh, you know, lovers. Uh, I don't know, but I, I was, I was sort of thinking like, uh, you know, I, I mean, the one good thing about, about queer is that it just seems so easy, you know, mm-hmm. like you don't have to do anything really, uh, except for identify and just say that you're queer. Cause I, mm-hmm. I was, I was thinking about in my own love life, like typically I would date brunettes. Like I liked, I, I liked dark haired girls but my wife is a blonde. So maybe that's my queerness right there. <laughs> you know, I'm just well, I, you know, that was a, 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 an on I'm, your own to out yourself like that. It's, um, it takes some bravery. No, it's, the point about the, are they having sex is a good one actually, because I'm, I'm sure this, this is a parallel phenomenon, but there's one thing that people have been talking about for a good few years is that younger people, I think in America as well as the UK, are having less sex a lot of the time. It just seems to be something which over time is happening less. They tend to drink less. They tend to do fewer drugs and the rest of it. Um, you get more problems at the extreme still, but it's still kind of on net. It's, it seems to be down. And yet you have that coexisting with this blossoming of identities <laughs> within this particular... Right. How those two things match up, I have absolutely no idea. Maybe, you know, yeah. maybe put yourself into a smaller and smaller box, you know, you just, you know, you kind of niche yourself out of any action. I don't know, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and if you think about it too, if anybody out there is skeptical about, um, you know, younger people having less sex, uh, they can choose to lie, and yet mm. they did not. You know, so whatever yeah, numbers they give, they could have easily just said, "Yeah, yeah," all the time. Of course, all, you know. all the time. I was having, I'm having sex right in the middle of this poll. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, be, being able, uh, being able to do that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, phenomenon too when it when it comes to. Um, you know, you have basically infinite selections when it comes to uh, gender or now, you know, that they want to get rid of biological sex. So maybe that'll be a new thing. Um, but when it comes to politics, it's either, you know, you're uh, a good person or you're or you're a bad person. Like there's a there's a binary when it comes to ideology or or philosophy and all that. But, uh, you know, everything else, it's like, you know, it's 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 your pick. Just do uh, just say whatever you are. You know, and is it, you mentioned the kind of getting rid of biological sex thing, because this is another thing which um, has been fascinating this week in the UK, and it's been a bit of a parallel with like the Katanji Brown Jackson confirmation hearings. Right, it's this long-running um, <laughs> kind of fiasco where basically the the leaders of the two main political parties, the Conservatives and the Labour Party, co- constantly stumble over this question about. Um, the definition of a woman or the iteration this week the reason i bring it up is it's actually quite funny is that you had the leader of the labor party being unable to answer the question of if women can have penises and it was a and it's just one of those things where i just am fascinated why this has become such a particular issue like the orwellianness of this is really quite strange it is really kind of two plus two equals five and yet it seems to me that it would be so straightforward for a politician of any stripe to say there is such a thing as biological sex but also trans people deserve respect and rights and all the rest of it. It's very straightforward, but the terror of um, blaspheming against this new ideology is such that they find themselves saying absurd things. Um, and I just thought it's worth, worth raising that it's, it's those kinds of issues are as intense here as they are in the US. Yeah. <laughs> Politicians of all stripes kind of tripping themselves up. I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, back when I was in college, you know, that's, you know, going on 20 years ago and even, you know, all the way up to through recent memory, the idea was, Look, there is biological sex mm. and there's gender. Biological is, you know, a, a binary, and then we have intersex people there. But when it comes to gender, that's where the spectrum is really, really, you know, uh, 
large and deep and whatever you want to call it. Um, and for a while, I think a lot of people, especially if you if you're uh, you know college educated and you want to be a nice cosmopolitan and, and good to people, you're like, yeah, I can I can get behind that. And then, like you say, something happened where now you have people claiming that there's no biological sex. And it's like, uh, you know, uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, which is, I guess, a way of saying, well, on this thing, you might be a conspiracy theorist, but it's almost like, yeah, yeah. It's like, is this, you know, was this intentional? You know, is it sort of like that, that mission creep or, or whatever? It's just little by little. It's like, hey, just accept this little thing. And then, uh, you know, you turn around and, and now I don't know if I'm a, a man or not, you know, mm. who can define who, who's, who's to say uh, what I am. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there, there is in terms of where a lot of these ideas come from, kind of philosophically, there is this desire to kind of disrupt, you know, the kind of uh, pre-existing notions of society and all the rest of it. But what I find quite interesting is that, um, and this is the sort of thing which I think really demonstrates that it's uh, definitely not some sort of plot or whatever is it sometimes um, portrayed. And I know you're really toying with that idea, but um, it's just the fact that the only reason that these ideas are given power and we're talking about them and that you have someone who wants to be on the Supreme Court of the uh, US or you've got someone who's vying to be prime minister of this country, unable to answer these questions, it's not because they believe this stuff. I don't believe for a second that Katanji Brown Jackson doesn't know what a woman is. Same with Chris Starr, the Labour Party. We all know that this, that what they really think. The, the problem is their own cowardice. That, and it's cowardice to say what you know to be true. Um, and how we got into that position, I have absolutely no idea, especially because the, the conceivable electoral price one might pay for just pointing out what is obviously true surely would be minuscule. Um, but I think it speaks to how politics in particular is really now a conversation between the political class and like the media elite and business. Uh, it, does, it doesn't really, that's who they're worried about a lot of the time, um, particularly on these issues, kind of just what Twitter might think about these particular issues. So it's one of those things where on the one hand, it feels like we've gone really far down this rabbit hole, but they don't, no one really believes this stuff. Mm. They feel they need to genuflect to it. It's like a kind of state religion that no one actually really believes in anymore. You still have to go to church on Sunday and you still have to say the things um, that you're supposed to say, but they don't really mean it. But in 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 that kind of moral cowardice, I guess there's still a lot of, a lot of problems. This is, the, this is the Anglican church of, uh, <laughs> of sex and, and gender. I, I think, you know, I no, I, I think you really uh, you really hit it there with the with the cowardice. And I mean, now I just want to see, you know, anytime a, a politician or somebody, you know, running for office, you know, refuses to answer that question or or, you know. Uh, tiptoes around it I, I would love for someone to just say you don't believe this you do not believe this come on i'm, I'm gonna uh, let the record show you don't believe this and then move on to the to the next thing and just calling you know uh you know calling that out and i i see i see so much of that. I, I think i'm i we are, are in a in a very unique position where uh you know our careers are built on us saying what we actually believe and, you know, and putting and, and putting it out there uh, and, you know, at least at this point. Yeah, I think I've been doing all right at this uh, <laughs> at this point. I'm sure there's some shit out there that I that I haven't uh, that I haven't said. And probably be, mostly because I, I, I wasn't able to craft something that sounded good. Some, some of my I think some of my things are some of my thoughts are probably more caveman grunting, you know, has that feel to it. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, what are you uh, what are you working on now uh any uh any fun stuff i know it's 
in the afternoon by you. I'm, I'm sure you got a lot of emails to open and all that. <laughs> no, it's, we've actually we've got a big project we're about to announce, but I can't actually say anything about it just yet. Not okay, um, but it's taken up a lot of time. But that's that will uh, people will find out about that very shortly. Um, beyond that, I mean, it's just it's trying to keep up with everything. Really, I mean, we've got. Um, I just got back from Hungary recently. Was like covering in the run up to their election there, which should be quite interesting. Um, we've also obviously got the war in Ukraine to contend with. Uh, recording our podcast tomorrow and trying to dissect what the hell's going on there. Um, and you know, it just it it just. I'm sure every people are as, as bamboozled as we are. Where it's kind of it just feels like we're we're kind of constantly trying to deal with and cover and come to terms with three or four competing huge crises at the same time you know mm. um and just trying to find it find a way through and, and uh, find an interesting perspective and all of that so yeah at the moment it's uh this project i can't announce and also just um this just the daily grind which is getting more and more complicated as as uh history be- <laughs> continues to be made in front of us you know yeah well, what um you know, if we want to touch upon uh, Ukraine and, and Russia just just for a little bit, and you know, I'm, I'm saying this as a person who doesn't, I have very little information or knowledge about uh, about the conflict in, in, in the two countries, um, but this is an example of one of those great events that's happening in the world. Where um, what I find more interesting are the responses to it, um, yeah. especially being uh, you know being in the states and seeing so many people, you know, putting up the, uh, you know, Ukrainian flags, uh, showing solidarity on social media, um, a lot of, um, you know, war talk, but Mm -hmm. knowing, but knowing that the United States is not going to send troops to Ukraine, we are not going to go to war with Russia, because unfortunately, there's so much at stake uh, for for the human race um, to get into a, a, a hot war with a, with a nuclear power that is Russia. Um, you know, you guys are closer geographically to what's going on. What, you know, how, how do you guys uh, see this uh, playing out? Like what's the, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, I suppose the, third, the, the very first thing that I think um, struck me and struck us when this happened was that I think it really pulled out the rug from under this slight, complacency which had kind of set in a lot of western countries for a long time mm. which was essentially that things like this particularly on our doorstep were over if war took place it was over there um and it was at arm's length and even if things got really screwed up uh you know the most that we would feel the effect of it would be say refugees or something like this it wouldn't be something which would have a kind of immediate kind of threat to our allies our way of life or whatever there was this kind of sense of like conflict was behind us um, and that everything was just on this conveyor belt to more peace, liberal democracy, all the rest of it. And the the war, if nothing else, has just made clear that that was an in, a slightly ludicrous, very complacent <laughs> perspective mm-hmm. to have, um, that these things are, are not settled, that a lot of the lasting kind of antagonisms, even after the end of the Cold War, haven't been sorted out. Um, and it's a difficult one because you mentioned the kind of people putting up, you know, the Ukrainian flag in their in their bios and all the rest of it. Um, and there's obviously a lot of virtue signalling and a lot of not very useful projecting your own uh, personal politics or almost a kind of a search for meaning in a far off conflict, which can often be quite unpleasant and also lead to people backing policies that they shouldn't, which could escalate things, draw more powers in a way that would be bad. But at the same time, I think it's also quite clear that this, what we have here is a, is a 
country trying to defend its national sovereignty, which I'm surprised how many people who say on who have voiced support for that in the past are slightly more uneasy about. Now, does that mean I think we need World War Three? Of course not. Um, that you know suddenly this should be something where you're seeing a hot war between NATO and, and Russia that should be avoided at, at essentially all costs. But at the same time, there's something that is this is a this is a significant fight that's going on. I think um, people it is something which involves picking a side to a certain extent. What that means is obviously something that we sh- people should talk about. Um, just going gung ho into it um, for the sake of you know for the sake of it and because it feels like um, this is how we're going to sort of recapture some sense of Western purpose could have very dangerous consequences. But at the same time. Um, I think there's there's been a tendency, particularly on the American right, I think, to just not quite get that, um, to almost sort of take Russia's side in a weird sort of way, or to mm. explain away what it's doing, and that I've got a lot of problems with because I have a lot of sympathy in that spikes over the years. We've made a lot of criticisms of you know the expansion of NATO, the way in which that has um, done what a lot of its critics back in the '90s said it would do, as far as it would bring out the more militaristic and um, backward and imperialistic elements within Russian politics and that it could kind of sow the seeds for a conflict such as which we're seeing. But at the same time, Russia is the aggressor here. Um, it, ha- it does have agency. It is making these decisions to so kind of treat it as like a, a child um, who is just lashing out uh, and that, well, it's our fault ultimately. I think it's, it's like a bit of a moral evasion, basically. So in a long way, it's a long way of saying, I think that uh, it's, this is a really important conflict. Um, and it's, I, I think most of us have moved, particularly as Spike, to be, to, there is something you need to sort of take aside on in some way, shape or form. But that doesn't mean being, as a lot of people are, so gung-ho about it because of the fact that they spy in this conflict a way to kind of get their moral rocks off rather than see a, see something that would be best for Ukraine and its people. But ultimately, I'm just left with something that's just so complicated. And it's reopened all these questions that we thought were closed um, and that's something which I think everyone across the West is going to have to start dealing with now, if we're going to navigate not just this particular conflict, but what comes after it, basically. Yeah, yeah. I've, as far as commentary goes, I, I have been pretty disconcerted with uh, people who, you know, say some version of Putin had no choice. Mm. He had no choice. He was, and it's like, no, no, you, you have choice. <laughs> he had a choice. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to, you know, to go in there. Um, I mean, it's one thing. I don't know. It's it's such an odd foreign policy decision to say that you're coming closer to my border because you want war. So I'm going to bring the war to you. Yeah. You know, I, I just um, but, you know, and, and you know, I, I have again, you know, I'm, I'm in an easy, very uh, easy position where I get to comment on this stuff without, you know, my own blood being spilled. Um, yeah. uh, actually, the, the less that I think about the actual horrors that are going on, uh, you know, obviously the easier it is for me to, you know, t- to make jokes or to, like I, I did, uh, for those of you who are, who are watching the video, you'll see my Ukrainian flag. That That's my joke. Um, <laughs> for my Ukrainian flag, I use a Swedish flag because it's a joke, but I'm able to, to make that joke because, uh, Fortunately, my my family is is ensconced in a in our house and we're we're safe and all that. So I I, could, I can only imagine what uh, what's going on. Or, or uh, I don't know if you're a um, uh, Konstantin Kissin. I don't know if you're if you're friends with, with Konstantin, but uh, uh, you know he's from Ukraine. He has family there. He's obviously in communication with a lot of the what's going on, and uh, you know that must be uh, must be tough for sure. 
So. Yeah, and it's always it's always worth remembering that you know whatever take one lands upon and these are people's lives and this is this people's nation which is which appears right. parish on a wipe off the map um and you know that, that's the other thing which aside from anything else you know the, the fight they put up has been so inspiring um really quite confronting and it's and it's um the, we always just have to remember that the center of all of this is a is human beings and a nation that's essentially fighting for its own survival you know and if that, if that doesn't move people to really think hard about this particular conflict and to put aside maybe some of the intellectual habits they might fall into in relation to this particular question it's it's surely this one you know the states could hardly be higher than in this particular conflict i think yeah yeah for sure well uh tom slater editor of spiked magazine again my favorite magazine um they've uh, I've been honored to uh, appear in the in the pages, the digital pages of Spiked. Uh, they're fantastic. I've been a fan of theirs for so long, and uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, uh, for you know coming on my podcast and whatever plans you have that you're not allowed to announce. <laughs> I can't wait to hear about it because I know it's going to be awesome. So thank you, brother. It's high praise indeed, Lou. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. And again, please order my book. That joke isn't funny anymore. On the death and rebirth of comedy. Just follow the link in the description or head over to Amazon and search for Lou Perez. That joke isn't funny anymore. And please subscribe to my podcast. Leave a five-star review. Why not? Sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com. And if you want other ways to support my work, you can join theluperez.locals.com. And of course, be sure to support my sponsors, palomaverdecbd.com. Use promo code Lou for 25% off purchases over $75 and black organic cold brew. B-L-V-C-K-B-R-E-W dot com. Use promo code Lou for free shipping. Thank you.